You might want to grab your Bible, open it to page one. We're hanging out um, in Genesis, if my throat holds out. (laughs) Um, And um, we, yeah, we're going to get to Genesis in just a bit. But first, I want to just preface a little bit about what, why. Like, we're not just looking at Genesis tonight because we're back in Genesis and, oh, well, we're reading it again, so here we go. But there's so much more to it than just, oh, it's the first page of the Bible. Like, I I remember when we were going through the Old Testament before, quite a few people were like, can't wait to get to the New Testament, right? And I get that. I get that. I really do, okay? But there's a reason that, that the Old Testament is just as important as the New and why we want to talk about it and why we want to spend time hanging out in it okay um so let me just um let me just preface it and intro it by by saying a few things firstly man i don't know if you've paid attention to the news or social media feeds or just anything like that conversations recently but there are so many opinions out there aren't there you know like on everything pick a topic and there are 50 people who will have opposing opinions and guess what they're all right yeah yeah, you know those people? I am right. I'm, no, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are. So, and you can find a bit like, gosh, who do I believe? Who do I listen to? Like, this bit sounds good there, but this, oh, I don't know. But like, what do we make of this? And, and who is the right person to listen to? And what is the right thing to believe? And, and so many people have so many different points of view. Um, it can get quite confusing. Now, those viewpoints that people have we all have them right we all have opinions don't we we all have ways that we understand the world ways that we interpret the things that happen around us Um, and and the thing that shapes that is what you call your world view some people will talk about your mind map okay that that kind of terminology but your world view and your world view is made up of a whole loads of things key points throughout your life and events and conversations that have shaped the way that you see the world and and no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how you treat someone, all of that is coming from your worldview, your perception, your lens, if you like, about how you see the world. Now, um, if we are Christians, right, most of us in this room would probably call ourselves Christians, and that means that we want to become like Jesus, yeah? Jesus is our king, he is our Lord, like he's our hero, right? He's our savior. He is, he is God, okay? And we want to become like him and we would call ourselves disciples. Christians mean that we are disciples of Jesus. And, and the best translation of the Greek word in the, in the New Testament that is disciple, the best translation into modern English is probably the word apprentice. And, and, and what that means is that we are apprentices of Jesus. Now, if you are getting into an apprenticeship, you see someone that you want to be just like, I want to learn to do that thing just like that person. That person is amazing at that. I want to apprentice under them. What you do is, you, first of all, you need to get up as close as you can to them. You need to be with them, right? And then once you are hanging out with them and you are with them and in their orbit, in their sphere, and you're starting to follow them around and spend time with them, you start to learn from them. 
and you slowly start to do the things that they do. Have you ever noticed that thing where when you're hanging out with people, you suddenly start making the same jokes that they make? I clearly need to get some better friends because most of my jokes are terrible. Uh, no, but um, <laughs> you, you start to say things like they say it, or you start to have the same opinion as other people around you sometimes. Slowly, we start to become like the people we hang out with. Um, and that's because that's, that's what happens. As we spend time with people, we learn from them, we start to become like them. And that's what apprenticing is like. You're spending time with someone, you start to learn from them and become like them. And ultimately, you start to be, uh, you start to learn from them, you start to become just like them. And that's what our vision as a church is about. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We want to be with him, learn from him and become like him. Now, there are a lot of people that say that being like Jesus is a good thing. But what a lot of people tend to do is they want to be like Jesus, but they want to be like their version of Jesus, okay? And that means I don't really have to hang out with Jesus because I just decide who he is and what he's like, and then I can be like that. Jesus is often like me. Do you not think that? Like quite often Jesus has the same opinion that I have, and... Um, and, and the rest of you, well, I don't know what Jesus you're following, but no. <laughs> but quite often it can feel like that. But I, I want to take a guess and say, probably if we actually encounter the Jesus of the scriptures, probably what we'll discover is that he often isn't like us. And that challenges us. That challenges us. What does it really mean then for me to follow this guy who maybe doesn't share all the opinions that I share? What does that look like? And the only way that we find out what that is like is to start by hanging out with him, by being with him. And we can do that by worshipping him, by spending time in his presence. But we can do that by reading his word as one of the best ways that we can be with him, by letting his gospel, his words speak to us and discovering what he was really like and what he acted like when he walked upon the earth. Now, um, as we start to read through the scriptures, we start to discover that Jesus had a worldview. And everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, everything that he taught, every action that he did and how he treated people, all came out of his world view, how he understood the world. And if we want to be like him, then we need to adopt his world view. If we don't, we can kind of make some sort of imitation, but we'll never truly become like him because we won't really be seeing the world the way that he saw it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, I've not got time, obviously, this evening to go through everything that Jesus ever said and did and pull out his worldview. Uh, so I want to encourage you, have a look, read through the Gospels, look at the things that Jesus said and did. I want to pull out just a couple of things tonight. Uh, just two examples. Um, to demonstrate something. But I promise you, if you go check it out for yourself, you'll discover that this is true. Uh, so the first thing I want to do is I want to jump to Matthew 22, just to show you a little bit of Jesus' worldview. You see, Jesus had a worldview. Let's read this passage, and then we'll, say, we'll talk about where his worldview came from and how it formed. So in Matthew 22, down towards verse 15 onwards, we get these guys, the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Well, that's a waste of time because Jesus never gets traps. I mean, they even tried to put him in a tomb and he got out of that one. So, hey, like, but the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, okay? And, and they, they trapped him by coming up to him and saying, hey, Jesus, what do you think about paying the imperial tax? Do you think we should pay it to Caesar or not? Now, 
This is a lose-lose question, okay? Because if Jesus says yes, well, then you're anti-Jewish, okay? And you're against us and you're for our oppressors, the Roman Empire. If Jesus says no, well, then you're anti the Romans and you're in trouble with the Romans and you're going to get killed. Do you see how it's lose-lose? There's no win in this situation. But Jesus, not one for being trapped, he says this. Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they bought him a denarius and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What Jesus did was brilliant and it's what he does every single time. He goes back to his worldview to make sense of what is happening around him. And his worldview is an Old Testament worldview. His worldview, his understanding of the world is built upon the firm foundation of the scriptures, the story of God and his people. In fact, Jesus' worldview so often comes right from the root of the Old Testament, which is the Genesis story. Okay, And you'll find that even throughout the uh, Old Testament, most of the stuff that we find there has its root in Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4. Okay? And, and you can track almost all the ideas that come throughout the Bible right the way back to the Genesis story. We're going to talk a bit more about that in a bit. But here, what's going on? What he does is so clever because he says, hey, who's the, the word image? Okay, In Hebrew is the word image. Tselem, Tselem. Whose Tselem is on this coin? In whose Tselem is this made? In whose image is this made? Oh, well, that's an image of Caesar. Great. Give to Caesar what belongs to him then. But give to God what is God's. Hey, what was made in God's image? You were. We were. We were. Do what you like with your gold, give it to whoever's image is on it. But you, your life, you were made by God, for God, in his image. So you live for him. That's what's really important. And that comes straight out of Genesis 1 where it says that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our image. And so Jesus just goes right back. Whenever they try to tra trap him, I'm just going to go right back to the beginning. And I'm going to pull my answer from there because that's a firm foundation. That's where his worldview comes from. Let's look at one more of these. Um, Matthew 19. Uh, by the way, you can find these stories in other Gospels as well. I just happen to like Matthew. Hey. <laughs> uh, but um, Matthew 19. Um, in Matthew 19, Jesus gets asked a question uh, about a marriage, about human sexuality. Often people say, hey, Jesus didn't talk about sexuality. Actually, he did. Because this is, this is a conversation about sexuality, about human sexuality, about marriage, which is part of that grand picture of what it means to be a sexually active human being made in the image of God. And so here Jesus gets asked a question about this. And the Pharisees, again, they're trying to trap him. They say, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, again, Jesus' answer 
is going to trap him either way, whatever he says, because there were mixed and split opinions in his cultural moment. Different people had different opinions. And if he said one thing, he was going to upset some people. And if he said another thing, he was going to upset some other people. Ever feel like that? <laughs> Ever feel like you don't know what the right thing is to say because whatever you say, you're going to get trapped? Yeah. So, hey, here's a moment where Jesus experienced that. Well, what did Jesus do? He said this, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When Jesus gets put in this situation, what does he do again? He goes back to the beginning. He goes back and he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says, hey, haven't you read that in the beginning, this is what happened? And, and there's a guy called John Mark Homer. You would have heard me bang on about him before, I'm sure. Incredible teacher and preacher. Go look him up on YouTube, buy one of his books. They're all great. Um, but um, he... He says, he uses this passage actually, and I'm stealing this from him. He, he, he says, what Jesus does is brilliant. He said, because in our time, what we try to do is this. We start with the behavior of humans. Well, if this is how we act, then therefore this is what this means for me to be a human being. Does that make sense? We, we like to define what I am, who I am, what it means for me to be human by the actions and the things that I do. That's quite often what we do in our world today. But he says what Jesus does is quite the reverse. Jesus always does this. He starts with theology, then he talks about anthropology, and then he talks about sociology. Let me unpack that for you. He starts with theology, words about God. He starts always with who God is. Haven't you read that in the beginning, God? That's where he starts, right? Always. Then he moves on to anthropology. In the beginning, God made them male and female. In his image, he made them. Oh, so when we know who God is, then we can make sense of what it means for us to be human. And once we know that, then we can talk about sociology. Then we can talk about the things we do and how we live. Therefore, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is how you should live. This is what your actions should look like. So he starts with God. That tells him what it means for us to be human. And then that tells us how we should live. And our actions are defined by who he is who we are in his image, and then how we live. Does that make sense? Jesus always goes back to the beginning to make sense of the here and now. Now, how many of you do that? I mean, I don't. I mess it up all the time. I find myself in situations, and I find myself being pulled this way or that way, or thinking, gosh, what should I say, and what is the right answer? And, and, and I find myself maybe trying to please another human being, or trying to please a group of people, or trying to please myself, or what, what do I do? But actually, if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be apprentices to Jesus, then we need to adopt the worldview of Jesus. And what that means is that whenever we face something, our first question should always be, well, what do the scriptures say? That's where we draw our answers from. And whether it sits comfortably with us or not, whether we like it or not, whether it pleases the people around us or not, and quite often it won't, okay? No matter what Jesus said, it was going to upset someone. 
That's where we draw it from because that is truth. That is the word of God. And, and so tonight, uh, I want to go back to Genesis 1. And I wanted to preface this talk with that because I, I, we're not just jumping into Genesis for no reason. We're jumping into Genesis because Jesus believed Genesis. He believed it. Now, whether you think it was a literal seven-day creation or whether you think it was a poetic story that explains something else, you can get into that on another time, okay? You can write that on a question and pop it in the box. We'll talk about that another time. Whatever you believe about it, you have to believe it is true. Literal or poetic, it contains truth that Jesus 100% absolutely believed and it shaped his worldview. And therefore, it should shape ours as well. Yeah? with me on that so far? Great, great. Now I'm not going to read all of Genesis 1, uh, but tonight we're looking at Genesis 1 verse 1 down to Genesis 2 verse 4, because despite the fact that the uh, creators of the scriptures as we have them in this modern form thought in their infinite wisdom to put a chapter 2 in and break it up, Genesis 1 1 down to Genesis 2 4 are all actually part of the same story. Okay, and we could go into why. I can sit and talk to you another time. Uh, there are two end verses. You remember we talked about chiasm before and repetitive stuff and mirroring and all that kind of thing. But these two end pieces sandwich this whole thing as one text. So that's how we're going to look at that tonight. Okay, this is all part of the same creation story. Um, now, I, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. Is that all right? Because this morning I didn't, and I fear that people got a little bit lost. So you guys, well done. You came to the right one, because hopefully it'll make more sense. <laughs> but um, uh, what I want to do is I want to, we could talk about so many things from this passage. I would love it to spend a whole month just looking at Genesis 1, maybe two months, because we could, we could spend ages here unpacking all kinds of things. But um, in two years' time, we'll be back here again and we'll pick a different thing to unpack, right? Uh, but, but this time, I wanted to pick something out that maybe you haven't seen before. Is that okay? Maybe you've never spotted this before. And what that is, it is this. Genesis 1 is all about the temple. Now you might be thinking, hang on a minute, Matt. Genesis 1 is all about the garden. But let me show you tonight how Genesis 1 is all about a temple, and then just explain what that means and why that was important to the worldview of Jesus and why that should be important to us. Is that okay? That's where we're going. Great. So, first up, Genesis 1. There are patterns all over Genesis 1. We could get lost in patterns, and, I, and I'm a little bit obsessed, and I love it. And if you ever want to come and grab a coffee and sit down and unpack Genesis patterns, I'm so up for that. I cannot tell you how up for that I am, okay? Uh, but let me just pull out a few things, all right? So um, the first thing is this. You will notice how many days are there. This is a poetic structure in the Hebrew language, and it is broken up by the phrase, and then it was evening, and then it was morning, the first day, then it was evening, then it was morning, the second day, and, and you keep going through and you count, and how many days are there in this story? There are seven. So that begs the question, well, are there sevens anywhere else? And the answer to that is, yes, there are sevens everywhere, everywhere, okay? So there are seven days, but also seven times we read the phrase, it was good, it was good. Seven times it gets declared that it was good. Okay, there's seven lots of that. Now, if you're a bit of a geek like me and you like to read the Hebrew, you can go to biblehub.com. They have an interlinear Bible. 
And you can read the English and Hebrew together. Make sure you read from the right side of the page to the left, because if you read it the other way around, you'll be very confused like I was the first time I did it. Okay, but they read the other way. So, um, so you can read it. And if you read Genesis 1 verse 1, in verse 1, you will discover that there are, in the Hebrew, there are seven words. Now you might think, well, yeah, that's coincidence, right? But let me just tell you this, it is intentional because actually only six words of the Hebrew get translated into English. One of them is a completely untranslatable word that's just left right in the middle of the verse, just so that there are seven words in the first verse. It's intentional. So in the first verse, there are seven words in the Hebrew. In the second verse in the Hebrew, there are 14 words, seven times two. Okay. Uh, If you look, you will see that um, throughout this uh, story, the word earth or the word heaven gets referred to 21 times. That's seven lots of three or three lots of seven. Okay. Um, If you look throughout this story, you will see that the word Elohim, which we translate God, gets referred to 35 times, which is five lots of seven. Okay, Uh, we could we could keep going. Uh, Let me do one more for you. Um, In Genesis chapter two, verses one to three. I love this. Talking about sevens. We're now onto the seventh day. Okay, and the seventh day gets mentioned in these verses, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, it gets mentioned three times in three sentences, and in each sentence there are seven words. Seven words. This stuff blows my mind. You're like, Matt, this is so boring. What what are you on about? Track with me here, okay? All right, there are sevens everywhere. There are threes everywhere. Seven and three is ten. So then that begs the question, are there lots of tens? And yes, there are, but that's for another day. Okay, so there are tens everywhere. There are threes everywhere. There are sevens everywhere. But in Genesis 1, stuff gets birthed, okay? A seed is planted and stuff gets birthed. It starts to spring up. Ideas start to shoot up. And then throughout the Old Testament, they start to take shape and they grow and and they form in all kinds of things. So once you start seeing something in Genesis, you want to start going through the rest of the Bible then going, well, hang on a minute. Do I see this anywhere else? And what does this tell me? Okay. So if we're going to track through the Bible and follow sevens, we've got seven days of creation. But then when you get into Exodus, Exodus chapters uh, 25 through to 31, tell the story of the creation or the construction of the tabernacle. Okay. So the tabernacle was a tent. It was like a movable temple in which the presence of God dwelt and people met with him. Okay, hold on to that. But there, the, the construction of the, of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through to 31 has seven stages of construction. And each stage is broken up with the verse that says, and then God said, and then God said, and then God said, isn't that crazy? That's what happened in Genesis 1, right? Seven days, and then God said, and then God said. And it's the same story when the, when the tabernacle is constructed. Um, I love this. If you turn to Exodus 31 with me, okay? Um, Exodus 31, verse 12. Then the Lord said, this is the start of the seventh, the final Um, instructions for construction of the tabernacle okay what is it about take a look in your bible the seventh and final lot of instructions for constructing the tabernacle and it is all about the sabbath 
Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. The seventh lot of instructions about construction for the tabernacle is about Sabbath, which is funny because in Genesis 1, the seventh day is the Sabbath when God rested. I just find this stuff absolutely fascinating. Uh, One last thing about the tabernacle. If you look then in Exodus 39 and 40, and you also see this unpacked a little bit in Leviticus chapter 8, you will see that once the tabernacle was complete, uh, we're just scratching the surface with this stuff as well, right? There's so much in there. But once the tabernacle was complete, uh, there was a consecration ceremony for the tabernacle. Do you know how many days the ceremony of consecration for the tabernacle was? Seven days. Seven days. There are sevens everywhere. Suddenly you're going, hang on, the Genesis story of creation and the construction story of the tabernacle are starting to sound very similar, like they're linked and they're trying to show us something that is the same. Now jump forward with me and we get to the temple that Solomon built. Um, If you look in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, I'm not going to read it, but you can look it up if you like. In 1 Kings 6, 38, you discover that the temple that Solomon built took, any guesses on how many years it took to build? Seven, yes. Seven years to build the temple uh, temple that Solomon built. And, and, And then... Once it was finished, there was a dedication ceremony for the temple, okay? And this dedication ceremony uh, was uh, taking place during a festival called the Festival of Tabernacles. Do you know how many days the Festival of Tabernacles lasted? Seven days. Do you know what month of the year the, the Festival of Tabernacles fell in? The seventh month of the year. Oh. So the dedication of the temple that took seven years to build happened during a seven-day festival in the seventh month of the year. There are sevens everywhere when it comes to constructing places that God is going to hang out and people are going to meet with him, right? Um, So then you get Solomon's speech, and uh, Solomon, he has this big dedication speech. And in his big dedication speech, there are seven petitions that happen in his speech. I love this stuff. Okay. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. I'm not going to read this one to you, but just uh, this, it tells us that Jerusalem, where the temple was built, would become the resting place of God. The resting place of God. So once the temple was built, and it had taken seven years to build, and then it was dedicated in a seven-day festival in the seventh month of the year, it then became the resting place for the presence of the Lord. Doesn't that sound just like Genesis? Doesn't that sound just like the tabernacle in Exodus? And here we've got it again with the temple. There's something going on here. Last one about the the, uh, temple. Um, Turn with me to 1 Chronicles. Uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And... um, In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, we find this little story that tells us about how, you know how David was the guy who dreamed up building the temple, right? He was like, you're my God and I love you. I want to build somewhere for you to dwell, to live with us. And God's like, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. But you're not the one to build it because you're a man of war. Okay, and then 1 Chronicles 22 goes on and it tells us this, verse 9 But you, David, will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. 
You will have a, a son who will be a man of peace and rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, which in the Hebrew literally means shalom man. It means man of peace. Okay. And I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build my house for my name, build the house for my name. So there is a man of peace and rest who will build the place that will take seven years, be dedicated during a seven-day festival in the seventh month of the year, which will become the resting place of God amongst his people. This is what scholars call temple theology. Okay, when you start seeing all the sevens, most people don't spot it all in the Genesis. They start to see it in the, in the reverse order. So you see something happening and then you go, oh, where have I seen that before? Back to Exodus. Oh, tabernacle, a movable temple. Hang on, where have I seen that? And then God said, and then God said, and then before. Oh, Genesis. Oh, hang on a minute. What's going on here? And Genesis, Eden, is a temple. It is a temple. Now, if you think I'm just clutching at straws, let me give you just a couple more examples just to, to pad it out, okay? Not just about the sevens. So in Genesis 3, verse 8, we see that in the garden, God was walking, it says in our Bibles, with them or among them. And the word in Hebrew is the word halak, okay? It literally just spelled H-L-K. And, um, and the next time that we see that word appear comes up in Leviticus uh, 26, in Deuteronomy 23. It, that word appears when we start to read about the tabernacle again. That word appears when we start to read about the temple again. We start to see that God is halacking in these places, right? Because this is what God does. He dwells, he moves, he hovers, he, he rests in these places am amongst his people. So that's, that's what's going on there. So, so what God is doing there, he's also described as doing in the tabernacle and in the temple. So another connection between the three. Um, our next one, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. So when God made man, he took man and he put him in the garden. And it says this, that he took man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, to work it and to take care of it. To work it and to take care of it. Now, if we've got a temple and we've got a God that's dwelling in that temple, what else do we need in that temple? We need priests. We need priests, okay? We need priests. If there's going to be a temple and a God, we need priests to serve the God in the temple. And so God takes man and he puts him in the garden and he is to work it and take care of it. Now, these words in the Hebrew are the words abad, which means to work or to serve, and the word shamar, okay, which, which means to, to take care of, to, over, um, to, to keep watch over, to preserve, um, to keep. The next time that these two words are used together in the Bible, in the whole Bible, the very next time that these two words are used together comes up in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And do you know who God is giving instructions to in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 and 8? To the priests. He says, this is what the priests are to do in the temple. They are to abad and to shamar. And so this is what the role of priests were. This, this, this instruction is an instruction for priests. And so suddenly in Genesis, we've got this instruction for priests, okay? So Genesis is starting to look more and more like a temple. Leviticus 16, 
In Leviticus 16, we get the story of the Day of Atonement. It was the big day in the year of the Jewish calendar when all the sins of the Jews would be forgiven, the big sacrifice would be made, and the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood uh, before the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. Now, on any normal day, the priest would be dressed up to the nines. You know, he'd have all his paraphernalia on, looking like the man, walking around. Okay, but on this day, on this one day, He was to take all of that off, all of it, and all he was to wear was a plain linen garment. That was what he was to wear when he walked in to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Lord, nothing else. The Holy of Holies was the place that God was dwelling. It was the place where his presence was. Where was his presence in Genesis? In Eden. Hey, What were the priests doing while they were in the Garden of Eden? They were naked and they felt no shame. They were just them, just plain, not dressed up, not covered up, not doing anything weird, just them in the presence of the Lord. Once they started to cover up, that's when they went out from that place. That's when it all kind of fell apart and they left that place. You see, again, God's saying, Eden, that this, this is what Eden was about, about you just being near to me. Do you remember the moment with the burning bush when, when Moses came near and God said, whoa, hold up, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Like get that thing out from between you and me. Stop covering up your feet, your dirtiest part and get close to me. That's what that was all about. And that's what's going on in the Holy of Holies. And that was what was going on in the Garden of Eden. Um, Okay, last couple of things about temples. Let's just step outside of the Bible for a moment, okay? Because there was a lot of this going on in the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, civilizations, groups of people, tribes, they were building temples left, right and centre because there was hundreds of gods that they were building these temples to. And all of their temples would be built following certain kind of patterns and structures. Not necessarily all exactly the same, but all very similar. But one thing that they definitely all had in common was the ceremony that took place at the end once the temple was built. You see, once the temple was built, they would wheel into the temple the Salem. Okay, the idol, the statue, and they would place it in the temple and they would worship around it and pray to their God and perform this ceremony so that their God would send his spirit into the Tselem and dwell there. What happens at the end of the story in the Garden of Eden is that God creates mankind in his image. He creates a Salem, an idol, a statue. And then what does God do once he's formed it? He breathes his ruach, his spirit, his breath into the breath of life, into the Salem. And so we get this ceremony happening at the end of the creation of this temple where God has come to dwell in the temple, in the midst of the people. The only difference here is that God isn't setting up fake little statues to live in. No, he's coming to live in real human beings. That's what that was all about. Because we are the image of God. You are the image of God. We are made to dwell, uh, to have his presence dwell within us, to be alive with his presence in us. Um, I love this. If you check out the Jewish temple, 
okay, you will discover that like, unlike, sorry, loads of other temples, there are no idols in a Jewish temple. The reason being is that there didn't need to be because the image of God was all over the temple already because the priests and the people that were in it bear, bore his image. It was already there. He didn't need anything else. He was dwelling in them. Last thing on temples then. This is the final thing on temples and we're going to come into land. I'm going to pull all this together and we'll look back at Jesus' worldview, okay? The last thing is this. At the end of the creation story, on day seven, we read that God rested. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that people have this idea that when we get to the seventh day and God rested, I think some people picture God... He just sat back on his leather chair, put his slippers on, put his feet up, got out his pipe, looked over his creation and sighed a deep breath and thank goodness that's all done. And then he just sat back and that was it. He rested, right? But that actually isn't quite the imagery that the word in Hebrew kind of is trying to get us to grasp. It's actually a little bit more like this. It's a little bit more like how... um, someone running for office as the president of the United States, they have this big build-up where they've got their campaign and they're running for president and they get voted in. And then, once that all happens, they move into the White House and they take up residence in the White House. They rest in the White House. All the work of getting there is done and boom, they take up residence and rest in that place. Now, Many of you may feel like, well, yeah, that's actually exactly what they do. Maybe the President of the United States just sits there at his desk, puts his feet up on it, and done for four years. And we wonder, actually, what the heck are they playing at and what are they really doing? I'll leave that up to you. (laughs) But, uh, But actually, what really is happening at that point is that they take up residence in the White House and their rule or their governance begins, doesn't it? That's the start of them governing over their country. And that's what's going on here, you see. God, he takes up residence in his creation. He, he sits upon his throne and his governance over it begins. It's not like he just sat back and was like, I get on with it. That's not kind of how it worked. He sat on his throne. And here's the thing. You see this again when you jump forward to the tabernacle, because what happened once they dedicated it? The presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle, so much so that Moses couldn't go in. And then, whenever Moses needed wisdom, guidance, a judgment made, whenever people needed healing, where did they go? To the tabernacle. Why? Because that was the throne of the Lord where he sat and he ruled and they could meet with him and he could speak into his creation. And the same happened with the temple. Once Solomon dedicated it, it was an incredible story. Go and read it. There's a huge load of sacrifice, blood everywhere, load of singing and worship, and then the presence of the Lord fills the temple. And that was the throne of the Lord. And you read other descriptions throughout the Bible about that being the throne of the Lord, where he sat and he ruled. And people would go to the temple again for wisdom and judgments. They would go there for healing. They would go there for all kinds of things, because that was the seat from which the Lord ruled. And so... um, When ancient people thought about God resting in their temples, it didn't mean doing nothing. It meant they came to rest there, as in to be present there and to rule. 
Does that make sense? And so again, we start to look back at the Genesis story, having seen it grow into something else throughout the Old Testament, and we go, oh, this is what this is about. Right at the beginning, before we had to create something because we screwed it all up, God was already creating a place where we could meet with him, where nothing had to separate us from him, where we could just be who we were, not dress up in any way, shape, or form, but really just be us in his presence and know him, be with him. And it was also the place where he was enthroned and he ruled. And we just had to trust his rule. But then we read the story, don't we, that they didn't trust his rule. And they wanted to rule for themselves and it all went horribly wrong. But that was what that was about. So maybe you've never seen that before. But um, I just want to share that with you guys today. There's loads of levels that we could look at in Genesis. But one of the things that we often miss, because we don't see it, is that actually... For a lot of the Hebrew thinkers, uh, Genesis is a story that is all about temple because temples are places where God's dwelt and people met with them and where God's ruled. And that's what's happening there. And do you know what I love about this? This is why I think it's so important to Jesus and his worldview. Because what did this mean that Jesus believed? Well, this meant that Jesus believed a few things. One, it meant that the whole of creation was the temple of the Lord. The earth was filled with the glory of the Lord, is what the Bible tells us. Which means that wherever you are, you can meet with him. How cool is that? Wherever you are, whatever you're going through right now, maybe for you right now, it feels like God is a million miles away. Wrong. Because you are standing in the temple of the Lord. And I don't mean this building, I just mean this planet. And he is present and you can find him. You can be with him. Um, that is the starting point of Jesus. If you want to figure out what, it, what you should do, if you want to figure out what it means for you to be human, if you want to figure out what your life should look like, hey, start with God. Get back to him. Find him. Be with him. Listen to him. Learn from him. And he will show you what it means to be made in his image. Be with him. That's the first thing that I think is so key to the worldview of Jesus. The second thing, um, let me just say on that, I love this as well, because you know that Jesus said he only does what he sees the Father doing? Yeah? That's it. Why? Because God is present here, and we can find him, we can see him, we can learn from him now. The second thing then, which is a little bit linked to that, is this, and I, I find this so encouraging, is this, if, if, if the world is the temple of the Lord and the presence of God has come to dwell within it, what does that tell us? God is seated on the throne because temples were the throne rooms of God's. And maybe you're going through some stuff right now which feels like, oh, there's no hope. Maybe it feels like, oh, I don't know what to do with this. I, need, I don't have any wisdom for this. Or I feel so lost in this. Or I've, I just don't know how this is going to ever work out. Or do you know what? We have a God who wants to be found by us. The Bible says, if you seek him, he will be found. And guess what? He is seated on the throne and all authority and power is his. And if you need wisdom, if you need healing, if you need hope, if you need, you fill in the blank. He is on the throne and has the power to do whatever needs to be done in our lives. We just need to come to him. So we're going to do that now. We're going to share communion together. And uh, this whole thing with communion is literally Jesus' way of 
bringing us back to the Father. That's what the cross was all about. He died so that our sin was dealt with, so that there was nothing in between us anymore, that we could literally be who we were made to be. And his blood was poured out, symbolic of the spirit of hope, of joy being poured out upon us so that we would be filled with the life of Jesus in us. Uh, Connie used to say that she loved the imagery of, of, of his blood uh, being poured out in the sense of my DNA being replaced with his DNA, his life becoming my life. I love that. That's what this is about. So the team are going to come in and lead us in worship. Um, and we're just going to invite you. Just There's a, t- a station there. There's a station at the back there. As we worship, go and and take communion. But I want to encourage you, take the bread and take the wine and maybe bring it back to your seat. Don't be in a rush to do anything right now. Take a moment just to be with him, yeah? As you eat the bread and drink the wine, go through that ritual that Jesus invites us into of coming back to the Father and finding a God who is enthroned and wants to be found.